Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Amadeo Peliche. He's the product manager at blockchain.com. Before I bring him on, I just have a very exciting announcement to make. Unstoppable Domains is now integrated with blockchain.com. So that means you can now send and receive crypto on blockchain.com using your .crypto domain name instead of that long string of letters and characters that make up your public key. So super exciting stuff. And I'll bring Amadeo on to talk more about about that. Welcome, Amadeo. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Diana. Awesome. So before we dive into blockchain.com and our integration, uh, I want to hear more about your backstory and how you got into crypto in the first place. Sure. So um, I've been part of the crypto community since 2013. Got into Bitcoin uh, because my roommate actually had some problems receiving, you know, making international wire transfers. And it was just a great, you know, user experience for doing payments. I then started a kind of early on crypto exchange here in the UK and worked in kind of Ethereum startups. And uh, most recently uh, joined blockchain.com as a product manager. Uh, the most exciting part of my job is just trying to make crypto more useful and easier, whether it's to get your first crypto or to actually, you know, transfer it around. Um, That's where I spend, you know, most of my time. Gotcha. So 2013, that was like super early days. How did you go about learning more at the time? Like, obviously, your flatmate having that real life use case probably helped. But in terms of sources, there probably wasn't really crypto Twitter at the time. Where did you turn to to learn more about space? It was actually a really small community back then. So the first big encounter with other crypto people was in the London Bitcoin uh, 2012 conference, um, which brought in like a lot of early day guys. And there was a Bitcoin magazine back in the day. Vitalik actually was a part of Bitcoin magazine and he actually was based in London. So I did get to meet him back when Ethereum was kind of very early days uh, and he was trying to integrate it into Bitcoin. At that time, we really wanted to you know, just make it really easy for people to make make payments and, and kind of use non-government money in a way. But I would have never dreamed that, that we'd be where we are today, just a mere, you know, eight years later or so. So, yeah, super exciting journey. Very cool. And for listeners who maybe are brand new to the space, how would you explain in like a one minute pitch, how would you explain crypto to them in a way that gets them excited to learn more? Uh, yeah, so crypto is sound money. If you take a dollar in your pocket, the fact is that uh, about two-thirds of those dollars have been printed in the last year by central governments. And crypto really gives people the opportunity to control their money and have money that can be used outside of uh, the kind of government systems to really access all sorts of applications. So it's, it's a really exciting development, how we're able to separate, you know, money from state that has never happened before. 
For sure. And then what do you see as some of the major roadblocks or reasons why we haven't seen widespread adoption of crypto yet? Um, I think that technology is still really early. I think whenever crypto gets a lot of adoption, whether it's through price movements or a new application gets launched on any of the main chains, uh, things clog up, right? It becomes really expensive to transact. Uh, The user experience is still lacking. So I think it's a combination of new sort of technologies that unlock use cases, and then those use cases actually getting getting adoption and getting ingrained into the day-to-day lives of people. So, you know, every every new kind of technological improvements brings in a new set of use cases, which then clogs up the main networks, which then brings in new technological improvements. So, you know, we're still really early days, and I'm, I'm super excited about the kind of further scaling of the technologies. All right, so let's dive in and talk a little bit more about blockchain.com. I think everybody has probably heard of blockchain.com, but for anyone who might not be very familiar, can you just briefly explain what is blockchain.com? Sure. So blockchain.com is usually people's first encounter with crypto. Uh, We're the oldest crypto company still in operation. We're best known for our blockchain.com wallet, which has over 70 million users all over the world, and it allows folks to get their first crypto um, and use it. In comparison to other players like Binance or Coinbase, um, blockchain.com allows you to store your crypto yourselves. So you hold the private keys to your crypto. We really believe we're powering a new, you know, a, a new money system for the internet uh, through this kind of Web3 stack. So we, we also have the blockchain.com exchange, which is a liquidity gateway. And uh, we have our institutional business where we have a, a large uh, lending desk and we, we serve institutional clients as well. So um, kind of large traditional crypto company, you could say, but uh, very focused on helping people control their own money. Gotcha. And so since you guys are a non-custodial wallet, do you see more, I guess, like crypto natives and people who've been in the space longer using it rather than newbies to the space who might be scared that they're going to lose their keys or something like that and would prefer more of a, a custodial wallet? We definitely have both cohorts. It usually takes education for people to understand why they want to control their own money. What we've been working really hard at is a good onboarding flow where we make it really easy for people to get their first crypto. Um, but before they can take those cryptos into their private key wallet, um, we actually educate them about you know, what it means to hold their own keys, helping them back up their, their keys. We have cloud backups that automatically back things up you know, on, on iCloud and Google Drive. We also have, we educate them about the seed phrase. So, you know, it's a journey. I think most new users start by just getting some crypto because they heard about it from friends. And by the time that they go to try to use it, we, we have to educate them before we allow them to transfer it to their private key wallet, which used to be the default for absolutely everyone. But, uh, you know, we've now made it so that folks need to onboard first and really understand what responsibilities they have with this. What have been some of the most successful ways that you found with educating users in the space? One particular trend that has really improved the user experience for people has been around stable coins. Beforehand, folks needed to, you know, onboard into wanting to get into Bitcoin or Ethereum, like one of the main chains. They didn't really understand that uh, 
you know, what the units of, of these currencies were. And I think things like stablecoins have really helped, you know, educate people as to what they can do with cryptos in a format that's a little bit more familiar. And it, it has served as a stepping stone for them to get into, you know, more more crypto applications, whether it's DeFi or peer-to-peer payments. So that's been in the last, I'd say, like three years. The other thing is more around kind of explaining to people that uh, the censorship resistance aspect of crypto is just really powerful. So, you know, no one can take away your money and it's yours to, to kind of use and control. From personal experience, I think the education piece is the most important. I also think that it's probably harder than it sounds to educate the public because there's such a big learning gap between what people are used to in Web 2 versus what people are used to in Web 3. And also, you know, thinking about engaging ways to educate the public instead of sort of just force feeding them the white papers and things like that, which I don't think is the best way to educate people. So uh, there's definitely a lot to think about and a lot to sort of play around with in this space for sure. So then looking ahead to the future, I guess, like, how do you see the crypto market developing, you know, and like, um, I, I don't know if you want to project out a year or five years or 10 years. I know things are happening so fast. It's it's like 10 years seems like an eternity. But how, how do you see things progressing? And then how long do you foresee until everybody is using crypto? So I think people will use crypto under the hood for most of their financial applications without knowing it in the next five years. It's probably going to take a little bit longer for them to actually, you know, understand that they're using it uh, under the hood and, and and understand why it's better. The reason why, you know, I stress under the hood is because a lot of the use cases that are getting traction in crypto are in the sort of, you know, gateway for connecting, you know, large institutions uh, front. Even if a customer is sending money through their, you know, Venmo account from A to B, perhaps internationally, from their point of view, they're getting dollars to their friends. But, you know, the, the settlement network and the payments network might all be powered by crypto uh, because it's it's better, faster, cheaper. Um, but that's slightly different from them, you know, being able to engage with the crypto networks directly. I think for that in a model where absolutely everyone is essentially like a node in the network, we need, uh, you know, pretty deep technological breakthroughs um, in terms of scaling, which uh, I'm super bullish on. But I, I, I think it's going to take a little bit longer than than five years. That's really interesting. Take I like the under the hood example there. One thing I'm wondering too is with running a company like Blockchain.com, do you get a lot of people? Or is there a lot of education that you need to do on the side of educating people about why crypto prices go up and down? I'm wondering, like, do you get customers writing into you all the time, you know, asking about that and or like even asking for your predictions about which cryptocurrencies are going to go up in the future? Is that something that you guys get a lot of? We definitely get a lot of inbound whenever there's a like large crypto market events, like folks are a little bit confused on why the price is kind of, you know, crashing or rising rapidly or whether the network gets congested or not. Uh, the first uh, sort of suspicion that they have is that we are making fees more expensive or transactions slower or, or all those things. We've also found cases where, because we're, we're focused on on the wallet business from, from a consumer perspective a lot. Sometimes we see 
crypto um, sort of users using other crypto platforms, those platforms having issues, and then they think we are having issues as a result. We get all sorts of things as kind of the gateway into other applications. You know, we always have to remind people that they control their own money, that this is an open network, that no one really, you know, controls these things sometimes. And and that's uh, that's not easy to to understand sometimes. I can imagine for sure. And especially with what's happening today, I mean, I'm sure your community team or your customer support team is busy busy today. And for reference, we're, we're recording this on May 19th. And uh, there's, I think everyone's been sort of like freaking out a little bit today because all the prices are tanking. I know you're not a financial advisor and none of this is financial advice, but just from your perspective, what are some reasons why there's so much volatility in crypto prices? What are maybe some things that cause crypto prices to go up or down? And then I I guess also, you know, like, what do you have to say to everybody who's freaking out today or just the people in general who get so much FUD from, you know, the little bit, the little, like a tiniest dip in crypto prices? Yeah, so crypto prices are are very volatile, and that's just by sort of as a result of the rapid growth that it's uh, that it's had. I think it's important to like remember that you know assets like Bitcoin are the best performing assets of all time, right? They beat if you compare it against absolutely anything else, they've been every other financial instrument, and just in the last year they've been up three hundred fifty percent, even at these lower prices. So. My answer is always like zoom out, like look at look at your chart and then just press the, the minus button and zoom out. Um, it helps sort of put things into perspective. These corrections occur naturally, right? Sometimes the market gets really excited and whatever, you know, trigger can, you know, create a bit of a cascade and a bit of a, a rush towards people selling or buying. Um, in this case, I think like people think that you know, Elon Musk's tweet just started uh, kind of this this wave of sales and stuff. But I think the fact is, like, all financial markets or uh, risk risky asset classes are also taking a uh, a bit of a of a hit based on some of the inflation fears and some of the interest rate uh, policies by the Feds that that they're considering. So, as to where things will go, no one really can tell you, but. We're in early days in this technology, so most people that that buy into it should really understand that they sh- they should really make longer term investments here and stay a- away from the the FOMO and the and the kind of uh, panic market uh, participation. Another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, I think I've seen maybe some articles you've written or some tweets that you put out on this topic, is how you see banking changing in the long run, and so maybe a good place to start there would be to talk about how banking works today. At least that's something that I realized after I got into this space is as I started learning more about Web3, I realized more and more how little I knew about Web2 and how things actually function behind the scenes. So I think like when we talk about banking in the future, we need to first look at, you know, how does banking actually work today? But I would love to hear your views on that. If you think about banking from a consumer perspective, there's there's usually two main use cases. One is sort of storing people's money and, and trying to get people yield on, on that money. Um, that's the main reason why folks leave their uh, their cash in their bank account. And uh, the other one is around payments, right? So they want to pay their bills. They want to pay their friends. 
and they want to pay rent. So, you know, when it comes to things like storage of money and, and investments, crypto really revolutionizes uh, this because it allows folks to um, store their own money and then distribute their wealth across very efficient markets um, that are powered by the technology itself. So, you know, some of these uh, large banking players will still continue to exist, but they'll more be kind of aggregators of a lot of these other, uh, you know, decentralized uh, marketplaces and just almost almost being the on-ramp in the UX UI layer. And folks will be able to access a lot of these international Web3 style applications uh, from their or, or reap the benefits from their traditional banking interface when when they're doing things like depositing or or or, or, or doing investments because markets will naturally just become more efficient. I think with things like payments, just kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, the current banking system is really fragmented when it comes to you know how the way that money moves around. Each bank essentially has a, an agreement with another bank to allow their end customers to send money to other customers in those systems. And you have these pools of uh, banks that have kind of agreements with almost everyone. And so they're kind of known as the large correspondent banks. Crypto really changes this in the sense that it really opens the playing field for more modern participants to be able to pay each other uh, at lower costs, uh, faster, and, and with less trust than um, the existing system. So crypto is really, you know, it's, it's not as much about decentralized finance. I think it's it's more about, you know, how finance will become really open, right, and and uh, accessible to everyone. We'll, we'll still call it finance. It won't be decentralized finance, um, but it ju- it'll just be a lot more open and, and, uh, and accessible, and markets will be a lot more efficient just because, there are no artificial barriers. So I think a lot will change, but it'll take it'll take some time. Yeah, for sure. I know something that um, Camilla Russo from The Defiant always says is she's looking forward to the day when we don't have to call it decentralized finance anymore, when it's just going to be called finance and it'll you know have the structure of decentralized finance. So hopefully we'll, we'll get there one day. And one, one interesting point you brought up is like sort of how uh, it's going to change how banking works internationally. And so I know know, you're based in the UK, I'm based in the US. And so I'd be curious to hear like your thoughts on how it's how banking will change in the Western countries versus in maybe like third world countries, like what what it'll look like um, in different areas of the world. We're really blessed uh, in the countries that we live in to get access to, you know, relatively good financial services, whether it's deposit accounts or credit cards or payment systems, for the most part, they work. The largest impact will be felt by third world country uh, sort of financial stacks. There's no longer a barrier for a user in um, a country that doesn't have uh, advanced financial systems to access uh, financial systems somewhere else, right? Why can't someone in the Dominican Republic, where I'm from, um, you know, get really good interest rates comparable to to the rates that folks in the U.S. or or the U.K. get, right? Or or why can't they access the stock market, right? Like th- these are all very artificial barriers. And you know, the more that we can bring them down, the more participants you bring into the market, the more liquid markets uh, become, and ultimately, the better, faster, and cheaper they become for everyone. So 
um, it'll have a huge impact for uh, for everyone, but I think it'll be mostly felt by you know third world countries due to the open access that DeFi brings. For sure, yeah, and I think we've already started to see some of that, right? Are, are there any examples you can think of right now where we've already started seeing that? You know, a lot of the sort of DeFi aggregators or DeFi, uh, let's say, browsers um, applications. If you think of uh, you know wallets and um, and gateways into into the DeFi world, if you think about it, you kind of take a step back. They are already starting to look a little bit like banks, right? We we have the entire uh, the entire stack from savings accounts to peer to peer money transfers and loans and uh, and so uh, or even more advanced financial instruments. So we are already seeing these sort of let's call them neo neo banks that don't take custody of people's money uh, already getting a lot of traction. You know, it seems like a lot of the traditional banks are kind of peeking into crypto by offering their clients the ability to buy and sell it. But whether, you know, they, uh, you know, step forward and actually start offering some of these decentralized finance power tools to their customers, I, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're yet to see it. And, uh, and, and if they don't, I think they'll just be left behind. Uh, another area that I, I know you're interested in and um, I'm interested in a lot as well, and I think this is maybe one of the reasons why you guys were excited to uh, integrate with Unstoppable in this way is this whole topic surrounding digital identity. And so another big aspect of moving from Web 2 to Web 3 is this concept around digital identity and being able to have more control over your digital identity. And so today, you know, if you're on social media, which just about anybody is, your data, your information, all the content you create, everything is owned by these centralized companies that you're using, Facebook, Twitter, uh, whatever platforms you're on, whereas in the future, all of that can change. So I'm just curious from your perspective, how do you envision a Web3 world when it comes to digital identity? Yeah, so identity is super central to to Web3. And to, just to kind of step back, you know, as you said, things like Facebook and Twitter, they hold all the data, you know, within their, their data centers. They, um, they control... Uh, who gets in or out of their networks, who sees what posts. Really, the promise of Web3 is to flip it on its head and allow folks to, you know, because the data will be democratized and, and decentralized, it will allow network participants to interact with each other without the need for, for a central middleman. And that's super exciting because it'll open all sorts of new use cases that perhaps weren't, uh, you know, really practical before. And the role of identity there is super central, right? Because everyone that interacts online needs to really know who the other person that they're interacting is, whether that's to make a payment to them or receive money or even to you know interact in, in social media. So I think the identity, you know, even though there's been maybe 30, 40 years of, of research and applications into kind of online identity systems, decentralized identity, it's still a really early space, but ultimately, you know, in a Web3 world, identity really means private key management, right? How do you manage your um, your keys in a way where you don't lose them, where you can prove to other people that you have them and uh, that you can interact with third-party you know, applications and people uh, really easily? 
and that's that's one of the things we're really passionate at blockchain about you know just allowing people to manage their their keys at, at scale um right now it's about money but key management and, and it's really the gateway to the rest of the financial systems social networks uh communications it'll really touch everything yeah when you talk about private key management what are you envisioning um, in terms of, you know, sort of a decentralized way of managing your private keys? The way to think about it is um, when you use WhatsApp under the hood, you actually encrypt the the messages that you send to, to your friends. That's super powerful because it means that other people can't really read your messages. And the way that that works is within the phones, right, within the apps that you download, there's a key that that is is held there, which is used to sort of lock and and, and unlock, uh, so to speak, your messages. And the reason it's decentralized is because everyone holds their own keys in their own phones, right? They're not really stored, you know, in a central central box somewhere for you. So that's super important. And the other the other thing that's important is it has to be easy to to not lose it, right? Yeah, you don't. If you add a new phone, if you lose your phone, if you, you know, add your computer, it should be super transportable and and uh, it should be really really hard to lose. Things like backing it up to your personal cloud, sharding it so you share it with your friends, or even you know more advanced things like putting it behind a smart contract that has custom logic. You know that's all going to make it easier for people to not lose their their keys. You know that's a really hard problem and. The third one is how do you make it so that people can can be locked out of these systems? Um, so the concept of censorship is 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 really really difficult to get right in a in a decentralized world. How do you ensure that everyone gets access to to these networks without while at the same time ensuring user safety without locking out you know people that you shouldn't be locking out due to false positives? So private key management at scale is an absolute requirement for Web3 to be successful. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that, but that's all very interesting stuff. And so then if you were to envision a future for maybe five years or 10 years down the line, where we are operating more so in a Web3 world, what does that look like to you? Like, are we still simultaneously interacting with Web3 apps and Web2 apps like Facebook and Twitter? Will those still be around Um, or will they sort of be completely obsolete and just, you know, destroyed by these Web3 social media platforms? And then are other things stored on our private keys as well? Like that's part of our digital identity that's beyond just social, our social media identity, like maybe thinking about like our, you know, our driver's license, our ID, our passport, birth certificate, like other forms of identification, will all of these be stored in a central place that's attached to our private key? And that's like sort of how we interact or I guess like, how do you think about that? Web2 will be around for a very long time. You know, the nice thing about Web2 is, is that the way that these services know who you are is by allowing you to authenticate against them, whether it's your email and password or more sophisticated methods, you're really just sharing some data that you have with them every time you use those services. So in a way, Web3 can be, you know, sort of backwards compatible to Web2 where, you know, we can build experiences that allow folks to manage their keys for the Web3 world, uh, but at the same time also manage their 
you know, access to Web2 applications in, in a similar way. So when it comes to uh, like folks interacting with their day-to-day lives, um, we've spoken about money a lot, right? So, you know, managing assets, transferring assets can all be done in a better way through tools that Web3 brings to the market. You know, if you think about um, social uh, interactions, whether it's uh, connecting with your friend and proving to them that you are you are you, or getting a uh, a service through a government website where you have to prove that you are who you are, these systems that are opened by Web3 make it really easy for you to not share absolutely everything with everyone. Uh, for every type of request, but you can break down the information that you share uh, with with folks. So a good example is, let's say that you wanted to get into a bar, right? And you had to prove to the bouncer that, you know, you're over 18 or 21, whatever it's in the US. You can automatically take out your phone, tap, and and prove to that third party only your date of birth, right? Without showing them your entire, your entire passport or your entire you know, driver's license. So these are great user benefits, right? They've become really accessible through these technologies. If we can make it so that the user experience is better and the underlying technologies can scale, and it's really, really safe so that um, users can't really be locked out of their lives in the same way that folks might feel, you know, if they lose access to their Google account or their Amazon account or the iTunes account and all of their digital content is kind of lost, uh, how do we ensure that that never happens in a Web3 world? It's even more difficult. It's a really exciting space to work in because just the tech challenges are immense. Yeah, this is definitely a time when I wish I was more of a technical person and could understand these different things. But I sort of just like, I'm like, wouldn't it be so cool if, you know, I could have all of my identity documents like in one place or and any sort of asset I own that's unique, you know, like to be able to store that as a token on the blockchain would be so great. Like you can think about like your mortgage documents, your insurance documents, like anything like that, instead of having to now, you know, if you ask me, oh, show me like your homeowner's insurance, I'm like, oh, now I have to like go down this, I have to go search for it. It's going to probably take me half an hour of like digging through things like nothing is in the same place. I do look forward to the day where when all all of our assets and all of our digital identity, like whatever makes up our, our identity can be stored in one central but decentralized location. Think about how long it'll take for some of these institutions to, you know, catch up to these these trends. You know, we're we're really looking at a long cycle here. So it's amazing that that we can even do all those things. But uh, you know, we, we really need to get the board out there of, of the benefits of, of this technology and and uh, really bring a lot of these sort of more traditional folks on board as well. Well, thank you so much, Amadeo, for being here. Before you go, the last segment I always do on every podcast is called Explain Your Tweet. This is where I go through your Twitter and I pull out some cryptic or interesting tweets and give you a chance to explain them. Uh, So the first one I have for you here is, this is from February 13th. You said, the U.S. banking system infrastructure is a joke compared to Europe's. So we sort of already talked about banking and what the future of banking is going to look like, but we didn't really talk about the difference between the U.S. banking infrastructure in Europe. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So, you know, in the news back then, 
uh, it was really trendy that, um, you know, you had the Wall Street bets, Reddit, uh, you know, Reddit wars and uh, kind of the market versus the people uh, sort of, um, you know, discussions. And, and it was just really stark how in the U.S. and in many countries, you don't have real time settlement systems for basic things like, you know, stocks and um, and, and even money. Right. Like, like if you want to transfer money to your friend in the U.S. in another bank account, another like banking institution, the amount of time that that really takes to to get to the destination is actually like it takes many, many hours at best and many, many days at worst. Whereas, uh, you know, in a world where you can send emails in, in seconds all over the world, um, it really should be uh, it really should be super easy to send money around or prove that you that people traded stocks. So um, Europe is a lot more advanced in that sense. You know, we, we get the benefit of being a little bit uh, a little bit smaller um, in, in some ways. But uh, but yeah, you know, even even Europe is not even compared to to the efficiencies that, that crypto will bring. So yeah, that, that was the context there. And then this other tweet, this is from February 25th, 2021. You said, it's incredible how connected you feel to the creators and open source communities that you support. GitHub donations will be huge. What do you mean by that? You know, in a world where people make their living online and people can because these markets have become so big, people can afford to really specialize in what they're good at and what they love doing. Users and, and people can build their own communities of fan bases uh, that support their work, whether it's sort of charitable work or whether it's maintenance of a particular software or a painter or a, you know a, a, a guitar teacher. The fact that we're kind of democratizing finance will mean that, you know, all these people will be able to make a living online. So I think a good example that I, I was just really struck how good the user experience was, was GitHub donations, which is kind of like Patreon for like software developers within GitHub, how easy they make it for an organization that already uses software made by some in, independent developer to, they, they kind of give them a heads up about, you know, oh, you should really be supporting, you know, X, Y, and Z because they they build the software that you're using today. So, if we can, you know, bring those principles uh, to to the wider, uh, you know, internet, that that's going to be amazing. Well, thank you so much, Amadeo. Good job completing the explain your tweet sections. It's really not as scary as most people think it's going to be. Um, <laughs> before you go, last thing, tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally. And then also where people can go to learn more about blockchain.com, maybe download a, a wallet for themselves or get on the exchange. Sure. So blockchain.com, that's that's the name of our website. Um, and you can go from signing up to getting your first crypto in less than a minute. We've actually recorded it. And uh, it's super, super easy. Um, so please try us out. And you can find me on Twitter on Peliche Ama. That's P-E-L-L-I-C-C-E-A-M-A. Perfect. We'll include that in the show notes as well. Thanks again for being here, Amadeo. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in as always. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. 
And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.